Good morning, Grace. We uh, continue our series titled Wise Up today as we uh, are dealing with two very important and sensitive topics uh, in our relationships, sex and, and money. Obviously, statistics tell us that these two issues are the, the top two issues uh, that lead to uh, marital tension or even divorce, and so we want to kind of take them head on in this series and address them in a biblical way. And the title, Wise Up, if you're new with us, comes from the fact that we are addressing these topics from the genre of books in the Bible that are called the wisdom books. And they land in the Old Testament, uh, books like Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. All those are books titled wisdom books because they teach us how to live rightly and skillfully in this world. Wisdom is not just knowing what to do, but it's also having the skill and the courage to do what is right in that circumstance. So that's what we're looking at. And in the, the first half of the series, we've been going through a book called The Song of Solomon. Uh, not a book that's taught on or preached on a whole lot uh, because it deals with a very sensitive topic. Uh, in particular, the whole book is dedicated to the sexual and romantic love between a, a husband and a wife and how God intended that to be. So it's a very important issue that unfortunately the church hasn't spoken a whole lot about. And as a result, our kids grow up, we've all grown up uh, being bombarded with messages from all other parts of life about this issue, uh, but not from God's perspective. And so we've been trying to shape it from his perspective to see how he wants us to handle this particular gift. If you're new with us as well, or you've been following us, here's kind of where we've been. The Song of Solomon is a song, like it's titled, or a poem that really is capturing the, the life of this couple, Solomon and Shulamite. And it's a song, it's poetic, so it's not necessarily chronological. Even though it's based on their actual relationship and actual events that happened, it's told in a poetic way. So we aren't following through their lives necessarily chronological. There's times we went forward and back. And it's also using poetic language to describe things that took place in their in their lives, but we've seen them court one another, we've seen their wedding day, their wedding night, and talk through that. We've seen them experience some conflict in their relationship last week, and then today and next week, we're gonna see two more things. Today we're gonna see their love deepen. What are some things they're doing, and how did they deepen their love as their marriage uh, continued in their relationship? And next week, we'll kinda see how they are leaving a legacy uh, with their relationship as they get later on uh, in their marriage. So if you have a Bible with you today, open it up to the Song of Solomon, chapter 7. Song of Solomon, chapter 7. If you have a worship guide with you, inside there, uh, there's a guide you can follow along with, and it should have the passage uh, page number. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one of those Bibles in the chair in front of you, and it'll take you to where we're going to be today in the Song of Solomon. It's just past Proverbs a little bit. If you know where Psalms and Proverbs are, keep turning to the right. You're eventually going to hit Song of Solomon, and we're going to be in chapter 7 primarily today and dip a little bit into chapter 8. Here's what I want you to see today. Uh, how you handle conflict in your marriage will make or break your enjoyment of sexual intimacy. In fact, we're going to see, because today's passage uh, continues from last week's, that uh, a relationship that fails to handle conflict will be a relationship that will fail to enjoy any true intimacy in it. 
And we're going to watch that today as this couple deepens in their relationship together. You're going to see three keys to deepening the intimacy in your relationship. One of them is this idea of conflict. How do you move through conflict? And we saw a lot of those principles last week. We're going to see the results of that today. The second is how you esteem one another. Okay, how you esteem one another, and the last thing is how you prioritize your relationship. Three key areas. Three, that's three key areas, right? Three. Conflict, esteem, and priority. So if you have a Bible with you, follow along with me as we take a look at it. First of all, I'm going to start with my first point, and then we'll start to read because this first point is based really on the bigger picture of the context of where we are at right here. And that's this, uh, sexual conflict handled well leads to deeper intimacy and delight. Sexual conflict handled well leads to deeper intimacy and delight. Like I said, chapter 7 here comes off the heels of chapter 6 we saw last week. Last week we saw them face conflict. They had some tensions. And how they chose to work through it has brought them to this point in the song that's being described in their relationship. And what we're going to see in this relationship, or in this passage, is two things. One, we're going to see their physical intimacy grow, how they're relating to each other there. We're also going to see a deeper priority and affections in their relationship grow as they take and make priority, make uh, time for one another, and they pursue and keep their relationship fresh as we go through here. And one of the things we need to know is this, that a good marriage is not a conflict-free marriage, but one in which conflict is worked through. That's a very important principle to understand. We're seeing it here. This couple had a conflict, and this is kind of a, a book that's talking about an ideal relationship. But in that relationship was conflict. We've often bought the lie that a good marriage or a great marriage is a marriage that does not have conflict. That's not possible. You bring two sinners together in in that close of a relationship and you will have conflict. In fact, the marriages that tell you they don't have any conflict often and almost without a doubt lack true intimacy because one person in that relationship isn't being real or they've learned to avoid or push it aside maybe like we've seen in relationships ourselves. They just kind of go through the motions but conflict never really gets dealt with. A good marriage is not a conflict-free marriage. It's one in which conflict is addressed and dealt with because conflict becomes the window to deeper intimacy. And that's exactly what we're gonna see in this passage. So let's watch and see what happens as we go through this passage. Chapter 7, uh, verse 1. We're going to see the result of them doing this. So if you, if you know the context of this, and, and commentaries will tell you what's going on here is, as this husband descri- is describing or speaking of her wife, that she is most likely, and it tells us in, at the end of chapter 6 that this is the case, she is actually dancing for her husband. Okay, this is a romantic, sensual dance. It was common in the ancient Near Eastern cultures to do something like this. It's not necessarily common for us today. It's just talking about their culture. But the way he's describing her and what's going on here is obviously she's wearing very little in this scene because he's describing her in very intimate details. And in a Near Eastern culture, you would have never dressed this way. It's a very modest cu- cu- culture that's always covered up. 
And so just before this, it talks about a dance that she's doing. And through this, she's making a sexual advance toward her husband in this passage, coming off the heels of how well they handled conflict. And it's opening that up. And so he's describing her as she's doing this. It says, how beautiful are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter. Your rounded thighs are like jewels. Now, you know the, the couple has grown in their intimacy when you can compliment one another's feet. And husbands, if you can even talk about your wife's thighs and her not get upset, you know you're at a whole other level in your relationship. Okay, and you see that. In this communication, he's communicating with her at a, a level even beyond where he did before. We're seeing the intimacy deepen in how he compliments and, and esteems her. He says, your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine, and your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Now, that will get you thrown out of the bedroom nowadays if you say something like that. But in their culture, it was a huge compliment. Let me help you understand what he was saying to her in that phrase, because to us it makes no sense. Israel was an agricultural uh, community. They were a nation that depended on their agriculture. And two of the most foundational crops in their economy were the wheat crop and the grapes, which produce wine. Those were the two staples in their whole economic system. And you can go back and read in Deuteronomy chapter 14. Deuteronomy is the book that was preparing God's people to first step foot into the promised land. Okay, Moses was reiterating everything that they'd learned to that point. And God made a promise to them in Deuteronomy chapter 14 that connects to this and it, and it weaves throughout the whole Old Testament and, and makes sense of this principle. And he said this, he said, if you will obey me, my people, he says, I will bless you with the early rains and the latter rains. The early rains were for one aspect of their crop and the latter rains were for another aspect of their crop. I won't go into all the agricultural detail, but if you know the these core crops, you know that the wheat crop was the first crop in terms of their staple to come to ripening. And then the grapes were the latter one. And the, the blessing and the bounty of both the wheat and the grapes were dependent on whether they got the latter and the earlier rains. So what God is saying is that when you obey me, my greatest blessing, my physical blessing to you is going to be uh, revealed in the fact that I'm going to provide the rains so that your crops are abundant and your nation can be blessed. That was very big for them in the land. What he's saying here is exactly that in a symbolic way. He's saying your navel never lacks mixed wine. He's using the, the picture of there's always plenty of wine. Why would there be plenty of wine in Israel? Because God was blessing them with the rains that were necessary for that crop. He says your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Why was there a heap and abundance of wheat? Because they also received the latter. They had both of these. So in a sense, what he's saying in a poetic way, he's saying, you are the fullness of God's blessing in my life. That, husbands, may get you somewhere. Okay? He's acknowledging her as saying, you know what, of all the blessings I've ever received in this earth, you embody the greatest and fullest blessing from God himself. 
You are, in a sense, you embody the latter rains and the, the early rains and all that it produces in my life. That's how he saw her, and he speaks to her in that way, in a very intimate way. Now, he goes both from these aspects of character to also physical beauty. He says in verse 3, Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bathrabim. Let me explain these as a little bit. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Again, towers symbolize strength or dignity. They were uh, military towers that would, in, in a sense, reflect the security or the strength of a particular king. Now, an ivory tower, there is no history book or no uh, geologic or, or archaeological evidence that there ever existed one of these towers that was fully made out of ivory. That would have been so unbelievably expensive and exquisite, it just couldn't happen. So what he's saying is that the, the strength and the dignity, the character that you, uh, that you represent in my life is exquisite. It's like nothing else that's ever been built in this world. Your eyes are like pools in Heshbon by the gate of Beth Rabim. Beth Rabim uh, was obviously a city and the gates, if you know anything about Israelite culture and times there, the gates was where all the economic exchanges took place and even religious exchanges. You can read about it in the book of Ruth and other places that the hubbub of the city happened at the gates of the city. It was like the busiest place in the city. And what he's saying to her is you're eyes are like the pools in Heshbon by the gates of Beth Rabim. If you went to this city, these pools were about 400 yards outside the city gates. They were uh, those hot springs types of pools. And so what he's saying is that, that when, I'm in your, when I'm looking in your eyes, it's like escaping the hubbub and the busyness of the city and going out to these hot pools. It's a place of retreat. It's a place of safety. It's a place of relaxation. That's how he sees his wife. That's how he esteems her. She's that kind of a woman to him. And he needs to see her that way because this next statement may be a tough one. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon. I don't know what to do with that one. I'm honest. I'm just being honest. All I can, all I can think of is, again, towers are strength. They, they depicted security. And so... I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt and just saying, hey, when I see your nose, honey, it means safety is not far behind. I don't know, maybe she had a big snout and he was just trying to make the best of it and even compliment her. I don't, I'm just telling you, I'm not quite sure what to do with that, but I'm sure it meant a lot to her. Just don't try it today, guys. Which looks towards Damascus. Your head crowns you like Carmel. Carmel, the Mount Carmel, was like the epitome of Israel's beauty. If you wanted to show people the beauty of Israel, you took them to Mount Carmel. And so he's describing her beauty in that way. Your flowing locks are like purple, which is the color of royalty. So he's describing her character and her nobility. A king is held captive in the tresses. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. Now he's becoming very intimate with her. He says, I say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. That doesn't need any interpretation. Oh, may your breasts be like the clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. And she responds, it goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. I am my beloved's. And his desire is for me. 
Here's the first point, and we're going to talk about some of these for the wives as well. As a husband will deepen sexual love when he esteems and values his wife. A husband will deepen sexual love when he esteems and values his wife. Where unresolved conflict clouds our ability to do this, resolved will. Here's what often happens, guys and, and, and ladies as well. This applies to both of us, but guys as well. When, when you don't resolve conflict, you build up bitterness and hurt toward one another. And a person who is filled with bitterness, filled with unresolved is- issues, without fault, it's, it's a natural pattern for things, becomes very critical. They're always seeing the faults in others and the faults in people because they have unresolved conflict in their own life. It's just how we're all wired. That's what we do. And so when we don't deal with the first issue of conflict, it leads us to struggling to ever be able to rightly esteem our spouse. We might just throw it out there, you know, when, when it benefits us, right? Or we'll manipulate with it, but it's not authentic, it's not real. It's not like we see in this husband who has very much thought about how much his wife means to her. She's not a perfect wife any more than he's a perfect husband. Guaranteed they have issues in their relationship, even as we saw last week. But the difference is they've learned to resolve them. And so he can now see her and esteem her and value her and even desire her in this way that builds up their relationship rather than tearing it down. Look at some of the things he says and, and how he does it. One of them, I think, he, is he notices the little things. He didn't say this before, but he's talking about her feet and, and notices them in sandals. He's beginning to notice things that maybe he didn't notice earlier on. He's also recognized that, that his wife is God's greatest earthly blessing. When he talks about the mixed wine and the, and the wheat. Let me show you some other passages that reiterate this and how important these are for us, guys, to understand and, and to memorize and to think about. Proverbs 31.10 says, An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. Do we see our spouses, our, our wives in that way, guys? Do we value them? Do we pursue them like it says here, more than we do the jewels or the treasures of this world. Because when we fail to do that, they will fail to become the woman that God created them to become. We are to take the lead in that area, and we see this husband here doing that. Proverbs 19.14 says this, House and wealth are inherited from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. Notice the contrast here. Earthly blessings are t- kind of like houses and wealth. We get those from our families, in a sense. But the wife is a gift from God himself. Do we see our wives that way? Do we pursue the things that are just earthly things over the gift that he's given us in our spouse? Proverbs 12, 4 says this, An excellent wife is the crown of her husband. In their day, a crown was symbolic of the glory of a king. It represented his strength, his dignity, his character, everything that he was, the things that were on it were that representation. And what this passage is saying is that an excellent wife is that to her husband. 
She is that valuable. She's a representation of who you are as a man. And, and we all know this, right? We can get dignity from all of our hobbies, guys, but you know where we get the most dignity? You know what it says the most is, is when we introduce our wives. When you have a great wife, it elevates you as a man. Because they're the crown. They're, they're a high priority. His desire, we see, was for her. He pursued her. Not only her esteem, he esteems her, but he also talks about her beauty. He talks about his desire for her physically and, and is not afraid to communicate that. And that's consistent with what the Bible says. Proverbs 5 says this. It says, let your fountain be blessed. In this passage, if you read the whole of chapter 5, it's talking about sexuality. In particular, it talks about an adulteress. It talks about faithfulness within a marriage. And fountains here refer to the man's sexuality. And And it's saying here, let your fountain be blessed, meaning your sexuality be blessed. And it tells us how. And rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely doe, a graceful doe. Let her breasts Fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. You see, the man who's blessed is the one who pursues his wife and delights in her and realizes this is God's gift to me in this particular area. It's not a man that's looking to satisfy his sexual needs wherever he possibly could, who thinks he has the right to do so wherever he could. It's the man who says, a wife is a gift to me in this area, but in all these areas. When I cherish her, when I esteem her, when I lift her up, when I delight in her, that's the man who's blessed. Totally contrary to what our world says about this issue. Guys, some great principles for us to learn and to see in there. When we value our wives, when we esteem them, we will deepen the love in our relationship, in particular the physical intimacy. Those things go hand in hand. Next one is, is wives. What does it say about the wives and their responsiveness and their response? And a wife will deepen sexual love when she respects and responds to her husband. We see some of these same things in this passage. A wife will deepen sexual love when she respects and responds to her husband. Go back and see how he describes her. He says, your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon. Uh, your nose is like a tower of Lebanon which face or looks towards Damascus. Your head crowns you like Carmel. Your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. He's describing his wife, but these things epitomize her as well. She has this kind of character and as a result of her respect for her husband, for her respect for herself, she is engaging him and her character is such that it blesses her husband. Why is, do you often do you think about that? Just as guys, and we can all get distracted and focus on other things and seek to find our respect and our, our, our joy and our satisfaction in all kinds of other things when God has given us a marriage in which to uh, fulfill a lot of those things. So wives, how you treat your husbands speaks a lot about what's going to happen in your future marriage and whether you're going to deepen that area in your relationship or whether you're going to harm it. Does my character bless my husband? Look at some of these Proverbs that, that talk about it. We saw the first one uh, that in Proverbs 12, 4, but there's two sides 
or two halves to Proverbs 12, 4. It says, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but it says, she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. Wives, we can neither deepen or we can harm a relationship by our particular character and who we are inside and outside the marriage. You can damage that and, and harm intimacy in that realm. Proverbs 31, that talks about an excellent wife, talks about some of her characteristics. says, the heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. That's huge, is, is the heart of her husband can trust in her. We talked about this a little bit last week when it came to conflict and not criticizing each other in public. One of the most devastating things that can happen is when we do harm to our spouse in public uh, over an incident that happened. We don't deal with it properly where it should be dealt with, and we start talking about it elsewhere. And this husband here, at least in this picture, he has absolute trust in his wife. He knows that, that she has all the dirt on him. She sees his sin like no one else does, just as he sees hers. But he knows that she would never hurt me outside this relationship. That she would love me enough to deal with it here and not have to take it elsewhere. That's the character of a wife that respects and responds to her husband. Uh, Proverbs 21.9 says this, It is better to live in a corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Okay, it talks about how important a wife's character is, even to the household and in that marriage relationship. Rather than being quarrelsome, it's being one who will resolve conflict and talk through it in a, in a proper way. And we see at the end of this passage, uh, when Solomon, uh, after he esteems and he loves her and he shares his desire with her, she's not only respecting him, but she's responsive to him. He, he speaks here again of his desire for her, and she just jumps right in and says, it goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. She's responsive to his needs when he's loving and esteeming of her. She doesn't go, oh, that's just sick. Stop talking about that. Why are you always thinking about those things? They, they bounce back and forth. They volley back and forth. And she's both respectful and responsive. He's both loving and esteems and values her. And you see how they work together as a team to deepen the intimacy in their love. Last thing we see is, is not just how conflict leads to deeper intimacy, but how it leads to a deepening of their friendship and prioritizing each other. So sexual love will deepen when I keep love fresh in my relationship. Sexual love will deepen when I keep love fresh in my relationship. So this last little section is going to talk about this. Watch what happens as they continue in their relationship. It says in verse 11, this is her speaking now. She says, Come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. So in a sense, what she's saying poetically is she's saying, come on, let's get away together. And the picture she's painting here is, is this is this taking off into the country. They're getting out of the city. They're going on a trip together. And she says, let's see if, if everything's blooming. Let's see if the blossoms are getting ready to, to pop and the buds are getting ready to, to bloom. And you remember throughout this whole song, every time uh, they depicted 
love, they depicted it in the pictures of springtime. The freshness. She's, she's saying, is our love still fresh? Or is it just kind of grown old? Is it kind of winter season all the time? Not that we don't go through seasons, but here they are later now in their relationship. They've had conflict. They're past the wedding. The honeymoon's over. And she's saying, let's get away together. And let's see if we can bring some freshness to our love. Look at how they talk about it. She says, the mandrakes give forth fragrance. The mandrakes were an aphrodisiac in their time. I won't go into explaining why, but um, just the, the appearance of them and so forth was very much used. In fact, if you read in Genesis uh, a story of Jacob with his two wives, you'll see that they bargained for some mandrakes. Leah and Rachel did uh, because of that, and, and you can go back and read that story about them. Mandrakes were considered an aphrodisiac and something that stirred sexual uh, relationships, and so she's talking in a very sensual way with him. The mandrakes give forth fragrance, and beside our doors are all choice fruits. We've seen those phrases in the past. Fruits often refer to the delights of their sexual love. She says, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O my beloved. And then she goes on to say, Oh, that you were a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breast. If I found you outside, I would kiss you, and none would despise me. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to teach me. I would give you spiced wine to drink, the juice of my pomegranate. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. We know that that's the the position of their sexual love together. And it says, I adjured you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. So they're talking about how their love is deepened and how they are using it and, and enjoying it together. But let me touch on a couple things that are really important in this passage that we see. The first is they make time to get alone together. She's making an effort. She's saying, let's get away from the regular routine, and, and prioritize and spend some time together. It's so important in our relationships, our married relationships, we often find times for everything else, for work, for our hobbies, for our friendships, and all these things. But when was the last time you just stopped and said, wait a minute, when have we gotten away? We get to all the kids' events, we get to all of our hobbies, we, all of our work projects, all that stuff gets all of our time, and then we come back together and we give each other the scraps. And what she's saying and what they're doing is they're realizing, hey, that stuff happens in any relationship, but have we stopped to say, when do we have our time to build into each other, to prioritize each other? She's saying, let's get away. Uh, do we make an effort, and here another question is, do we make an effort to enjoy new things as well as the usual? You know, it's so common for us guys to exhaust all of our creativity at work or with the kids, or in hobbies, and fail to employ any of it in our marriages. Not this woman. She's saying, hey, I got old fruits for you, and I got new fruits for you. And she's saying that in a very sensual way. Old fruits could refer to those things that as your marriage matures, you realize there are certain ways you can communicate with one another that you know exactly what you're getting to. Right? We all have phrases, we all have statements, we all have ways that we say, hey, tonight we're going to connect with one another, and you have your little phrases that you do. I could hand the microphone around to couples that have been married for a while, and you know exactly your little old usual system that says, hey, this is where, what I'm talking about. And that's a good thing. That's that, that casualness or that comfortableness that you develop together. But she says, I have old fruits and new fruits for you. 
You can guarantee his eyes lit up when she said that. Why? Because she said, I'm bringing not only the old stuff, but I'm bringing a creativity to our relationship as well. Because it's for us. They prioritized each other. And then lastly, the last little section is important because it doesn't make sense to us in our culture, but it does in terms of what they're saying, is are we growing in our expressions of affection towards one another? The last section where she says, oh, that you are like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breast. I found, if I found you, I would kiss you, and none would despise me. What she's doing here is she's speaking into her culture, their culture. It was an Israelite, a Jewish culture that still exists today if you were to go to Israel. If you were an Israelite or you're Jewish, you would never show public affection with your spouse. It just was not acceptable in Jewish circles, in particular in Israel, even to this day. If you were to go to Israel and walk in public with your spouse and maybe put your arm around them or even kiss them, you could very easily get slapped by another man on the hand for doing something that was not considered appropriate in their culture. But for family members, it was totally appropriate to express affection. You'll see brothers hugging one another. You'll even see them kissing one another. You'll see them holding hands together. There's all kinds of affection shown between family members that wasn't considered appropriate with a spouse. And so what she's saying here is that, you know what, my love and my affection for you has grown so much that I I wanna show it even in public. I wanna show it in places that normally I would be despised because that's how my heart feels towards you. How has our affection grown for our spouse over the years? Has it deepened? Has it grown? Have we found new ways to express it to them? Because that's what you see happening even in this couple here. Their love is deepening for one another. You see, we often wrongly think that avoiding conflict is the key to deeper intimacy and love. But nothing could be further from the truth. When we avoid conflict, we basically slam the door on ever having a deeper intimacy in our relationship. And nothing communicates this more clearly than God's plan to address our conflict with him through sending his son. Think about this. We were in conflict. We were broken. We had blown it. And God could have responded to us like many of us naturally respond. He could have said, you know what? I'm just going to pretend it doesn't exist because it's going to put a wedge between us. People, it had already put a wedge between us and God. God could have just said, I'm just going to sweep it under the rug and pretend it doesn't exist. But that never happens. He could have waved a magic wand and said, let's just make all sin go away. But that would have violated his very character as well. So what did he do? God faced the conflict head on. And in a way that that nothing and no one in this world would ever have thought about if he didn't model it first. God said, here's how we're going to address this conflict. I'm going to send down you, Jesus, my eternal perfect son. And you're going to take on human flesh. And you're going to walk on this earth. And you are going to model to my people and to this world, what a perfect, intimate relationship is with your Father. And after you've lived 
an absolutely perfect life, you're going to die like you lived in total conflict with me your whole life. You're going to die like you were the worst of criminals. You're going to accept the punishment for the conflict that all these sinners have built up over years and years and generations. You might say, well, why would Jesus do that? Why in the world would he live in perfect intimacy with God so that he could die as if he had the worst of conflicts with God? So that he could take your place and mine. So that you and I, who are in conflict with God and are in conflict with others, could die as if we were in total intimacy with God. Jesus confronted it. Jesus took care of it. He paid for your conflict, your sin, and mine. And he did so that when so that when we face our relationship with God, we see sin and we see conflict in a whole new light. See, we think it's got to be something to avoid because if we bring it up, it's going to get rubbed in our faces or our noses are going to get screwed down into it and, and smashed down into it. But that's not why God brings it up. That's not why God surfaces all of our issues through his word and through his son. He doesn't surface them to condemn you and to push you away. He surfaces them so that you can deal with them in the person of his son. He has provided a way so that you can securely confess your sins and know that they don't any longer keep you from him. That it's only when you own them, it's only when you confess them, it's only when you ask for forgiveness from them that you'll truly open the door to the intimacy that God deeply desires for you to have with him. So husbands, wives, what if we took that same truth and brought it into our marriage? What if we said, I love you unconditionally, and, and no matter what you do, my greatest gift to you is forgiveness. You don't ever have to be afraid to own your part. You don't ever have to be afraid to bring up conflict in our marriage because no matter what, as we talk through it, I am going to forgive you and I can trust that you are going to forgive me because it's not perfection that builds intimacy in our relationships. It's how we handle conflict. It's how we learn to forgive one another. Church, if we became a people who learned to handle conflict and deepen intimacy in our relationships, like we see here, like, like Jesus was willing to do for us, how different would our marriages look than the typical marriage out on the street? How different might our community see Christians and how they value marriage and how they forgive each other so much so that they're going to go how do you do that how can you possibly work through that in your relationships and then you'll have the opportunity to say let me introduce you to someone who modeled this for me his name is jesus let's pray father Thank you that you loved us so much 
that you didn't shy away from talking to us about such intimate, important, detailed issues, even something so sensitive and so personal as sex and how that works out in our relationships, how that works out in how we treat one another, how that works out in how we forgive one another. Because, Lord, we don't try to be perfect to develop intimacy. That's not going to happen this side of heaven. We are broken, fallen people. But little by little, you are redeeming us, you are changing us, you are sanctifying us, you're maturing us. But that always happens as we press into your son, as we lean into him, as we learn about his unconditional commitment to us and of his incredible sacrifice to live for us and to die for us. So Father, I pray that you help us be a people who who walk headlong into conflict, not seeing it as something that separates us, but seeing it as an opportunity to deepen our intimacy with one another, knowing that you've already dealt with the issue of conflict. It's not about being right or wrong. It's about willing to forgive, willing to move forward, willing to learn to love each other in a way that this world knows nothing about. Lord Jesus, thank you that you modeled this for us. And that even when we didn't deserve it, you laid down your life. You resolved the conflict. You acted as if you were totally in the wrong when you weren't, so that we would have a chance to own our part and be restored with your Father. May you grow that same spirit in us as we learn to love our spouses, as we learn to love others as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.